what I love doing is talking to people about, hey, if you found incredible success or outsized success, you know, what were the things you did to get there? You know, what did you find that worked really well for you? Uh, because all along you're thinking, well, how can I, if not replicate that, how can I borrow some of those tenets? How can I borrow some of those elements to help chart the path that I'm on as an individual? Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Hey guys, have any of you seen the new Top Gun movie, Maverick? Well, if so, you are going to love today's conversation with Guy Snodgrass. Now, Guy is the chief executive officer for Defense Analytics. He's a retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot and former Top Gun instructor. Now, his last tour of duty took him into the halls of the Pentagon, where he served as communication director and chief speechwriter to the Secretary of Defense, James Mattis. Now, during that period, he authored the publicly available 2018 National Defense Strategy for the United States. He assisted with presidential speeches and was responsible for Mattis' congressional testimony in public remarks. Guy is someone who just has a wealth of information around leadership, personal development, and getting the best out of yourself. And if you want to understand some of the lessons he learned in these different domains around leadership, instruction, and what he did flying fighter jets, then please listen to this conversation with Guy Snodgrass. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I'm launching a new podcast called Momentum Minutes. Now, don't worry, what got you there isn't going anywhere. But after talking to countless listeners, the number one thing I kept hearing is you want more wisdom in less time. And that's why I'm launching the Momentum Minutes podcast, so you can hear the most important ideas I'm discovering in about a minute a day. Now, this is going to be the most impactful minute of your day, giving you the fuel, inspiration, and momentum you've been looking for. Now, after spending over five years interviewing over 300 of the world's most successful people and reading hundreds of books, I'm distilling down the best ideas and sharing them on this podcast. Think of this like you're sitting down with your wise mentor each day to get their timeless advice. Momentum Minutes is a daily podcast that is now available on all podcasting players, so click the link below or search Momentum Minutes in your favorite podcasting app and hit subscribe. And after listening to a couple episodes, let me know what you think by sending me an email to sean at whatgotyouthere.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called You Unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now, You Unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. Guy, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Hey, it's great. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I would love to know, what are you doing minutes before getting into a jet? Like, I want to know what you're doing to get yourself ready. And then what the state, what is your mental state like right when you're about to take off? 
Yeah, it's a great question. You know, when you think about the phases of flight, um, you have your uh, pre-brief, right? So you're preparing for the flight. You brief the members of the flight with what's going to happen. And there's a little window of time between when you, all the members of the flight have cleared out of the ready room. And then now you're just alone with your thoughts. And that's where you're basically mentally preparing yourself. You're kind of we call it chair flying. It's where you're you basically are using your imagination to imagine how the event's going to go. You're visualizing what success looks like. You're thinking through, most importantly, I think, what are the possible issues that might arise, the challenges you might face. And now you're kind of thinking, okay, well, if this comes up, what am I going to do to deal with it? And that way, you know, when you're in a fighter jet and you're going 600 miles an hour, it's you're almost a little bit reacting on instinct. And so it's so important and it's really critical to be thinking about those things well in advance so you're prepared and ready to go. And then to your point, uh, you know, at that phase, you throw on your flight gear, you go out to the fighter plane itself, you do what's called a walk around. So you make your way around the entire aircraft, you're checking aircraft integrity, making sure panels are fastened, all the things are ready to go. Then you climb in and you fire up a $80 million piece of hardware and you get ready to launch into the sky. And of course, after you've done, you know, the first few times you do it, it's a little nerve wracking just because it's, you literally are launching into the unknown. But after that, after you've done it, like in my case for 20 years, it becomes a habit pattern, it becomes routine. And now you can focus on kind of some of those higher level things that are going on. But yeah, man, like when you think about some of the best jobs you can have in the world, getting a chance to rip around uh, in the skies in a fighter jet is pretty cool. Yeah, that, that this has literally been one of my dreams my whole life. I would love just to, just to get to fly in one of those. Uh, to me, it just seems endlessly fascinating. But I would love to know, something you said is eventually you just end up reacting on instinct. How long does it take to get to that point? where all of a sudden, yep, it, it's muscle memory, you're reacting on instinct as, a, as opposed to more that rational, logical mind thinking through all the steps? Yeah, that's it, a great question. I think it's going to vary for everyone, right? Everyone has their own, the way that they learn, the way that they acquire new knowledge and information, the way that they're going to put that to use in the, in the field in which it's applicable. In my case, I'd tell you I was a slow starter. Uh, I tend to pick up knowledge pretty quick, but then you've got to you've got to bridge that gap between the knowledge and, the, and actually putting it into action. So uh, you know, it took me maybe a couple years of flying to where I felt genuinely comfortable in the jet, where it, it was almost like putting on a suit coat, right, or, or like a sports jacket. You know, you're just like, hey, this fits me. I feel comfortable. It feels comfortable. Let's go do this thing. So uh, I, I knew people who it seemed to click for them much earlier on. And then I've met people who, for whatever reason, it, it really never did click. And so they had to find something else to do in the military. But um, it's different for everybody. But I think that's what's interesting. And, and so then you have another issue you have to deal with, which is, hey, I'm really comfortable in the jet. Well, then now are you overconfident? Now are there things that you are maybe overly assessing your capability. And so, you know, that's something that as I gained seniority, as I became a commanding officer for an entire fighter squadron, as I worked in senior levels of government, you know, I'd always, I'd always encourage people to think about it as like, hey, no matter how good you truly are, you always want to think you're slightly less than that because it gives you room to grow. It gives you something to shoot for and an area where you can continue to grow and develop. But if you start thinking you're better than you really are, and you become arrogant, that's where the danger creeps in. Is that an internal knowing for you where you're catching yourself, you're catching your own thinking, or are you relying on other people to kind of bounce that feedback and, uh, and let you know, you know what, you, you need to tone it down a bit? Yeah, I'd say if you're doing it right, it's both. Okay. You want to, you know, we always have this saying in the squadron that the world is blessed with people who lack self-awareness, right? So it's the people who kind of go around and are doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And you're like, do you really not know what this looks like? <laughs> um, so, you, so number one, internal, right? And I think that's part of being a genuine professional. You could be in any kind of professional organization. You could be a doctor, you could be a fighter pilot, you could be 
you know, anything where there's this nature of being a profession, because a profession, a big part of that is that you're largely self-regulated. And as part of that, you've got to be able to have an effective and accurate assessment of, well, where am I as an individual? Where am I within the profession? What are the things I need to do to continue to sustain my skill level and increase my knowledge base? But I'd say, you know, that's a big part of it because you want to be very effective as an individual, but then you definitely rely on your network. Uh, you rely on those around you. You know, I always, when I do public speaking, I always tell people that you want to bring, you know, people into your orbit who are willing to tell you what you need to hear, hmm. not just what you want yeah. to hear, right? Because, you know, we've got friends and all sorts of people through our lives who will just tell you the things that they think you want to hear. Like, oh man, you were great. Don't worry about it. Awesome. You know, but the people who are willing to pull you aside and say, hey, when we were flying today, you made you made a mistake and you really need to know it because this is what it could have led to. You go, oh, wow, did not realize it. Thank you for calling it to my attention. And then you can make those corrective actions. And you don't even have to be in a profession to have that element. You know, anybody can serve that role in your life. I think what's critical is that you open the door, that you invite scrutiny, right? Professionals invite scrutiny. So you invite people to say, you know, uh, you, you actively ask for that and solicit that feedback. As a Top Gun instructor, I'm wondering, when do you provide that feedback? I'm assuming, I could be completely wrong here, but but during flight, can you, can you provide any feedback or is it post-flying that you guys sit down, debrief? I would just love to know how that works for you in such a high-stress, high-speed environment. Sure. I would say the honest answer is it's continual. So it could be out of the cockpit, it could be in the cockpit. Typically in the cockpit, once you've started the mock battle, you've started your fight, you're rarely going to interject unless it's what's called safety of flight. Okay. So if you as the instructor realize that an aircraft is about to collide with another one, if someone is about to lose life or you're going to lose significant you know, property damage, then yes, absolutely. As the instructor, you have to come up on the radio and advise on the next course of action to prevent that from occurring. Uh, on the flip side, though, uh, you typically want to let that battle play out so that you can capture all of the pieces of data, you bring it back to the debrief, and then that's where you really, you know, anchor down. And that's what Top Gun's really known for, are the uh, marathon level debriefs where, you know, you, your flight may have taken an hour and a half, but your debrief takes five or six hours. Mm -hmm. But it's because you're going through every piece of data. You've got videos that you can watch where we record through our heads up display. So you record a view out the front of the aircraft, you record the displays that are in the aircraft, you record kind of what's happening around you. And you can watch all those pieces of information to help the student who has less experience uh, to rebuild, you know, we call it truth data, right? So, and I think that's a great point in life. You know, we always have our perception of what we think happened, but then there's usually some elements of truth data that we have access to that can say, hey, I think this happened. And it's like, no, no, let's, let's go to the tape, right? You know, the NFL playback, let's go to the tape. Let's take a look at what really happened. And you can just, you can sit there and say, wow, my perception was off. But by doing that, you continue to close that gap. Uh, and so now the students can rapidly increase, you know, in their capability and their knowledge base. I love that phrasing, truth data. Uh, I, I played sports most of my life. So yeah, those, those film sessions, uh, the, the film never lies. <laughs> so there, there's no escaping that. I, I am curious though, you're, you're talking about kind of like rising and ascending up, you become the professional. Were, you, were there moments that you felt imposter syndrome or doubt or just concern with if you were capable of doing this? I mean, flying at such a high speed, requiring so much skill, oh, yeah. so much knowledge. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think there were times uh, in the aircraft, especially when I first started, not only as a, as a student through Top Gun, I think as a student, the perspective that I, I had was a little different because you knew you were a student. But once I had graduated and I was asked to remain as a Top Gun instructor, 
you know, that's when you realize, hey, I'm with some of the best pilots that America has, that the world has. And so you're always, you know, in a healthy way, you're trying to compare yourself to others to figure out where can I learn, where can I grow, where am I deficient, where, you know, where's the most opportunity for personal and professional growth. But yeah, there's always going to be times where, especially when I first started standing up in front of an audience to teach other top instructors about something. And when you're a junior instructor and you're doing that with senior instructors, there's always going to be a part of you that's like, man, these, these guys and gals probably know way more than I do. You know, who am I to be teaching them? But uh, you learn pretty quick that, no, no, you know, I'm the subject matter expert in one particular area. For me, it was air-to-air mission planning, so aerial warfare. And hey, that my job was to be as deep as possible because all the other instructors have their subject matter of expertise, right? So they might be air-to-ground or they might be some kind of weapon system or a missile uh, so they're going to be the experts there. And and I don't know everything about those things. They do. And so that's what makes the staff uh, as a team, as a, as a cadre of instructors, really strong. I would also kind of branch out because we're talking about fighter pilot stuff. But one of the cool things about the U.S. military is that typically most service branches, uh, you have you know your specialty, in my case, being a fighter pilot. But I also had a lot of out-of-cockpit experiences where you know I worked at the Pentagon twice. I worked for the Secretary of Defense, uh, General Jim Mattis. And, you know, it was fascinating because when you talk about imposter syndrome, that's usually where I felt it the most, right? I felt incredibly comfortable in a cockpit, but then you suddenly pull me out, put me in an office building and you say, okay, now you're working with professionals who've been in that setting for decades in some cases, and you're the brand new kid on the block. And not only that, but you're in charge of say, in my case, I was the chief speechwriter for the secretary of defense, right? So I'm writing speeches for the president, speeches for the secretary of defense, and uh, I'd never done that before. And so there's always going to be a little part of you that's probably working extra hard because you just want to make sure, you know, you don't let your boss down. And in that case, you don't let the country down. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, one of the things I hope the listeners are doing here are, are understanding what you did, but then understanding how they can use that in their own environment. So I, I would love to know, you just said, I had no experience. And all of a sudden, here you are, you're the speechwriter. How did you end up getting in that position? What did you do to be able to get to that place? Yeah, I think so, so many of the critical things that really help people across any sector of business, sports, et cetera, it's really kind of two things, right? It's it's uh, having a strategic mindset, and then it's having uh, this desire for lifelong learning. And, and that could be however you want to catch it, right? It could be, hey, self-improvement. It could be that I always want to strive to be the very best that I can possibly be. And, and you mentioned your background with sports, right? I mean, every sports team that's successful is like that. Uh, hey, we did great in today's game, but let's do even better tomorrow, Right. Um, so I think having that kind of internal drive really matters. But the reason why I mentioned a strategic mindset is because you can, you know, there are so many ways in life you can generate success. You don't have to just be passive and, and receive someone else's kindness to be successful. It's, it's you can make it yourself. And, and the best way to do that is to take that strategic approach. So maybe I'm going into the Pentagon. I've never written a speech for a senior leader, you know, especially a senior American leader in my entire life. Okay, well, I know I'm going. I've got a couple months to get ready for this. So I'm watching every video I can find of the leader I'm going to work for, in this case, Secretary of Defense Mattis. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading up everything I can about kind of, in this case, U.S. policy. I want, to, I want to make sure I can kind of step into his brain and know as much as I can about how he thinks. Um, and so you start learning, as they say, his voice, right? But that's, that's specific to speech writing. And I think that, that type of approach, however, can relate to anything. Uh, my, my cousin's a doctor, right? Hey, if I want to be a good doctor, I've got to study how other doctors have done new and novel approaches. I've got to uh, think through what are the risks that might happen. You know, if I'm going to do this new procedure, then what are the things I've got to make sure I have set out 
and ready for success in advance. Because as we all know, right, typically, you know, the moment of crisis or the moment where you're needed is not necessarily where it's all going to come together. It was all the preparation you did. It's all the practice you did beforehand that's going to lead into it. And this gets back to a point you made earlier about when you said that I felt comfortable in the jet and it became a habit pattern, right? It's all that buildup. It's all that trying and working and practicing that really has a cumulative effect. And then suddenly you find yourself in a situation where you're ready to go. Yeah. One of the things I like that you highlight is the amount of depth you had to go to, to prepare for those, those moments, right? Like you mentioned, trying to understand his voice, reading every single thing, all the speeches. It's like, it requires that amount of practice of dedication. So I just want to highlight that the importance there. One thing I'm intrigued by though, you said you kind of got that, that internal drive, but then you also, you can be strategic. That internal drive for you, where did that come from? Right? Like, were you a kid who said, you know what, I want to fly a jet or did that come later in life for you? No, I was that kid. Um, I, you know, and and maybe it's a, te- I mean, I think it's something that a lot of people have. So I'll use me as an example and I'll compare and contrast me to my brother, right? My brother's doing amazing work right now. He's a, he's a school administrator for a school district here in Texas. Um, he didn't really know what he wanted to do until later in life. Uh, he kind of bounced around. He, he went to the air force. He enlisted. He was a, a part of what's called security forces. So kind of their police force. He spent some time overseas. He did five years. He got out. Uh, became a police officer. And it wasn't until he, he retired from the police force and then got into the educational system where suddenly the light bulb went on. He's like, man, this is awesome. I love this. And not only do I like what I'm doing, but I want to be you know, the superintendent. I want to be a senior leader in this school district. So you know, same thing, right? That Now that that fire has been lit, he's doing everything he can, whether it's uh, you know getting a master's degree, higher education, continuing education, finding mentors who can help him chart that pathway forward. And so you know, on my stance, yeah, I was that kid. I was kind of a self-starter. I didn't require a lot of direction. You know, I really wanted to, like my pathway into the military was to go to college at one of the service academies. So I went to the U.S. Naval Academy up in Annapolis, Maryland. And, you know, that it was, that was me as a kid figuring it out. Like my parents didn't have a whole lot of um, input on that. It was me saying, hey, I want to do this. I want to be a fighter pilot. This is probably the best path to get there. And then figuring out the application process and how to work with members of Congress to get the appointment. So, like I said, I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's, it's awesome when you're there uh, and you see that light bulb go off for people. And I think, you know, if you take this one step further, right, as for all of us, once you have figured out what that looks like, that's where a lot of the joy comes from is when you can be a mentor and you can help others achieve what they're looking to do, right? And so you can take all the lessons you've learned and start paying those forward and saying, hey, you know, maybe this isn't directly applicable to you, but here are some of the key tenets that I felt really worked for me to help launch me into the career I really wanted. Uh, and then you can start sharing those with them and they can, you know, between that, you you can help translate to what works for them. Yeah. You mentioned just your natural self-starter and I'm wondering, maybe, maybe this wouldn't be applicable to Top Gun, but I'm wondering some of your work outside of it. Do you have anyone or did you have anyone within the training program that did not have that inner spark, that just self-starter mentality? They could just do it all on their own right away. Did you, did you run into people like that? Uh, you mean, uh, for example, at Top Gun, who yep. who just naturally were awesome? Yeah. No, <laughs> we all we actually all talked about it. You know, we 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 joked about the fact that you know you looked around the room and it wasn't like everyone at Top Gun was like a high school valedictorian or a college valedictorian or that they were some kind of like superhuman intellect. Um, it was really just people who um, they they wanted to be masters of their craft. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be the very best at what they did. It was kind of like a Hey man, if I'm going to go and 
and uh, work in sanitation and collect garbage, then I'm going to be the best one you know, that I can possibly be. And so that's the real mentality that drives a lot of these elite teams. And it can be like what I did at Top Gun. It could be Navy SEALs. It could be, you know, um, again, high performing individuals across any industry. Usually that's that key characteristic is just the refusal to accept anything other than excellence. Um, it doesn't mean you have to be a, a jerk about it. It just means that you sit there and say, that's that's the, the sites that I have set is to be the best that I can possibly be. And it actually builds a really cool camaraderie. You might think it's hyper competitive and it's not at all. It's very much um, everyone wanting to help each other out. It's, it's iron sharpening iron, which is really nice to see. Yeah. I'm wondering just that that path to mastery there. What what about that path to mastery do most people who've never been on that path, what don't they know? What what do you only experience once you're you're part of that group and you truly are on one of those paths to mastery? Yeah, I think the thing that you probably don't know is, well, I guess there's probably two elements that st stand out. Uh, one is just the hard work and dedication it takes to get there. Because I do think that there are a lot of people out there who kind of look at people who've risen to the top and they say, oh, luck, timing, you know, something broke their way and that's what made it happen. And I think that from a cultural standpoint, it's also challenging because, you know, we do have a little bit of a get rich quick mentality. Um, and it could be, it could be podcasting, it could be YouTube, it could be TikTok, right? You know, it's like we're, we're inundated all the time with these individuals who came out of nowhere, they popped on our radar and then they're wildly successful. I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, just as a random example, the actor, Jason Momoa, right? Um, I'd never heard of this guy before he was starting a movie called Aquaman. And then suddenly after that, he's everywhere. But if you look back through his body of work, it's like, nah, man, he was in the background. He was toiling. He was working. He was out there just completely, you know, beating the streets, uh, striving to find that break. And then when the break came, it looked real easy. But there, but that kind of undercut all the work that went in to make that possible. So I think that's no, that's just number one thing: like hard work, dedication, perseverance. Those are all key attributes that are going to help propel you to where you want to be. And there really isn't in many cases, in most cases, going to be that kind of get rich quick, random lottery ticket that propels you to success. You got to do the, the do the reps and sets. Um, the other element about that, you know, if people kind of uh, look backwards and say, okay, now that I'm here, what's, what's something else that really stands out? Uh, I think it's also just the fact that it's easy to draw kind of this golden thread. Like if you look at my entire career arc, you know, people can look at where I'm now and be like, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, he kind of walked this golden path and it's like, well, no, I mean, each one of those things were a, a decision-making point. Um, you're always presented every, every single day with a decision. And that's why I love some of the advice that people give where it's, you know, hey, you can make mistakes. I mean, we all do. I make tons of mistakes, right? Throughout my career. But uh, hey, when it comes to that next decision point, make the right decision this time, right? So start that positive trend of, no matter what's happened in your past, I'm going to, I'm going to make the right choice with what I'm facing today, do the same thing tomorrow. And then that continues to propel your vector upward as you move forward. Talking about those, those decision points, those inflection points, what have you used to make better decisions over time during those key decision-making moments? I would say for me personally, one of the things that um, I've always felt that I did was fairly unique um, is I always sought mentors who were one or two decades older than me, uh, right? That's the easiest way to gain knowledge. I mean, 90% of people are going to gain knowledge by experience. And that's a challenge because you have to actually do the event. You actually have to go through the process. Maybe it's a, a quick one or two day thing. Maybe it's a one or two year experience, but you actually have to live it yourself. And then you realize at the end of it, oh man, that was a mistake. 
right? So gaining, uh, gaining knowledge through the experiences of others is phenomenal. So I was always a voracious reader as a kid. I still am now. Um, right. So you can read biographies, you can read, uh, all sorts of things that are going to help you kind of make that internal decision of, well, the path that I want to be on is, am I doing it the right way? Or is there a better way? And is there a way I can kind of sh- uh, short circuit that pathway so I can, I can make moves quicker than I normally would be able to. So I think that's one thing. And, and, and again, I was kind of that kid at, at the age of 14. I'll never forget when I asked my dad, I said, Hey, if you could do your life over again, what's the one thing you would change? Uh, and in his case, you know, he was not an investor. He had never really invested money, uh, but he, he, that was his thing. He's like, Hey, if I could do one thing over again, I would invest because man, compounding interest is crazy. Um, but if you start when you're 50, 60, it'll work for you, but it's just not going to work for you if you start like when you're in your teens. So that's what I did. Right? I started, you know, figuring out how do how do you invest? How do you save? How do you do those kinds of things when I was 16, 17, 18 years old? Um, to kind of get a head start there. Right. So to me, that's the thing is, uh, you know, be comfortable with being uncomfortable, get outside of your comfort zone, ask for help, ask people. If you know what you're interested in, find people who are really good in those fields and just, you know, they love to talk about what they do, right? Hey, how'd you get here? What'd you do? What were the paths you took? Who, what resources are available to help me? And all of that will, will you know, constitute time compression where you can uh, make a lot of advancements and you can accelerate your path forward much quicker than you would have elsewise. Yeah. It's the, it's the entire reason I have this podcast. It's like, let me learn, okay. let me learn from these other people uh, who are way more intelligent. One thing uh, I'm intrigued by, <clears throat> you mentioned learning from others. I came across this really interesting study about surgeons and what they found is surgeons learned better from other surgeons' mistakes on the operating table, but they learned better from their own successes. And I'm wondering if that's something you've seen uh, across all the different things that you've done. Did you tend to, when you failed, did you learn more from your failure or did you learn watching other people's failures and learn to avoid that? Yeah, you know, it's tough. I mean, it's kind of like a binary choice. And I I would say it's, uh, you know, it's cop out maybe, but I'd say it's all the above. I mean- we're, we're always doing that, right? That's, that's the nature of how the human brain works. It's, it's our own little neural network, right? So you're always taking an input. You can sit there and evaluate it and say like, Hey, is this something I like or something I dislike? And so, yeah, there were times where I found uh, incredible success in the cockpit of a fighter jet or in a business room or whatever it may be. And you make a little mental note, like, Hey, this worked really well. The way I presented here worked really well. I'm going to, I'm going to replicate some of the things that worked well in the future, but at the same time, maybe some areas that fell flat I'm going to seek to avoid those in the future. Um, I would say when it comes to others, you know, at least in the military, we always said that the most valuable and the most, the lessons that stood out the most were the ones that were written in blood, Hmm. right? Those are the ones where someone was seriously injured or potentially lost their life because of a training accident or because a mistake was made that would have been preventable. And those are the ones that do always stick with you because obviously they had such severe outcomes. And so I think um, it probably is going to be a little bit more predicated on what type of work you do. But I would say, you know, if you if you force me to choose, I'd say I'd, I'd reverse it for me. I'd say that usually I learn the most from other people's success and my own failure because, you know, I'm the, my failures are very real to me. And so that's something I want to avoid and I want to try and find more success. And like I mentioned earlier, what I love doing is talking to people about, hey, if you found incredible success or outside success, you know, what were the things you did to get there? You know, what did you find that worked really well for you? 
Uh, because all along you're thinking, well, how can I, if not replicate that, how can I borrow some of those tenets? How can I borrow some of those elements to help chart the path that I'm on as an individual? Hey guys, it's Sean, and we are about to dive right back into this episode. But before we do, I wanted to take less than a minute to tell you about my online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, over the years, I've personally coached CEOs, executives, and professional athletes, and I've interviewed over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast. And my course, You Unleashed, compiles the most important routines, mindsets, and skills that you need to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, you will learn these things over 19 video lectures that I'm going to teach you in this course, and you can find out more about the course by heading to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or you can click the link below. Now, that's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. Yeah, I, I love that. <clears throat> I think I think of building a mosaic, right? You're trying to pull all these different pieces together that eventually start forming that mosaic to, to hopefully help you live a, a bit better, more meaningful, deeper, richer life. Um, one thing you mentioned in the beginning of this call is, is just before you're going to get uh, in the cockpit, when you're in the room, you're alone with your thoughts. It sounds like you're using a lot of visualization or mental imagery. I'm wondering, is that something that you do even in other contexts, if you're about to enter a business boardroom, anything like that, do you use mental imagery in other elements of your life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think some of that is just uh, being mindful or being very thoughtful about the process of what it is you're trying to achieve. You know, there, it was interesting. It's, it's a little bit more tied to memory, but there was a good book I read about 10 years ago called Moonwalking with Einstein. And it was all about, you know, how you how anybody could take their seemingly basic level of memory skills and you, you could significantly increase it, right? And so one of the ways that, that people do that is through what's called a memory palace. It's the ability to, instead of trying to remember like 10 numbers, 10 random numbers, just by memorizing the numbers, you visualize it. You visualize like, hey, number nine is, you know, when I walk in my front door, number nine is where my coat rack is. And number 26 is in the closet. Number 33 is in the kitchen, right? Um, and so because you're putting mental imagery or visual imagery to it, it's much more real for your for your mind. And so you know, even just walking through that with you real quick, it's like, okay, yeah, nine and 26 and 33. So I, I think that's something that has always worked really well for me. I know everyone's different, but yeah, I mean, if there's, whether it's investing, whether it's uh, working or going into a boardroom or whatever it may be, going into a speech is probably a great example, right? You're, uh, you know, you're going to have an audience. You got a couple thousand people out there who are going to be staring at you. So being able to visualize how you want them to perceive you and how you want them to receive that information. And, and that helps you to determine what's going to be the most impactful. Where do you want to really uh, kind of foot stomp the information versus where do you want to just uh, step back a little bit more, right? You provide that variability. So all of that, all that can work really well. I'm wondering just because some of the environments that you've been in, uh, I could be completely wrong here. Do you feel as much stress in day-to-day -day things as the average person because of your past experience? No, but it's funny because uh, I don't. Um, you know, before this, before we started, you know, you and I chatted real quick about how the effect my daughter broke her wrist last night. Yep. And I think, I, I know a lot of people, you know, that that would be like, oh my gosh, you know, my daughter just broke her wrist, freak out. And, uh, and luckily I have a wife who was with me for 17 years on this military journey. So I think we've seen so many things um, that are like almost like this heightened sense, you know, this heightened dopamine stress level, whatever it is that stuff like a broken wrist or my son had a compound fracture with his arm a few years back, you know, you sit there and you just kind of go to that, that special happy place where you just say, okay, we're just going to focus on, you know, what are the things we can impact right now? How do we triage the situation, you know, get things fixed up. And then, you know, a few days later, once everything's going just fine, then you can 
kind of let more of those emotions and be like, oh man, that was crazy, right? But it it it's, it does have a downside because you know I've seen combat. I was in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, I've I've been in several situations in an aircraft where I've nearly lost my life, probably about a half dozen times, with very very close calls. And uh, the downside is that uh, it does it can make you hard to relate sometimes to other people because you know uh, someone having you know a mild fender bender might literally just destroy their day, let alone their week, uh, and become an overwhelming situation. And it's hard for me sometimes to relate. Um, and let's face it, there's far more people who've gone through those types of situations than have gone through mine. And so that's where again, you know, you you make that assessment, right? We're talking about personal growth. So part of that is me saying. Hey, you know, I've done these crazy things in combat and other things, um, but that was then. This is now. How do you, um, how do you most effectively maneuver through daily life, yeah. uh, and and be able to reach people uh, in at the area in which they're the most comfortable? Because as 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 you do with your podcast, right? I mean, it's a huge part of your audience and the and the the, the members of that. Your um, subscribers, right? Who who want to listen to you each and every week, each and every time. Is, is the ability to reach them in a way that's going to have that personal connection. I think that's a huge part of finding success as well is, is understanding your audience and understanding how best to reach them. So is there anything you would recommend for, let, let's not call it someone who's going to absolutely freak out over a, a minor thing, but but people who are just trying to get a little bit better emotional control. Are, are there any foundational things that you'd tap into just to be able to handle and regulate those emotions a bit better? There is. I mean, uh, something I've always taught is that emotion is the enemy of good judgment. Uh, I, I've before stoicism became cool. I was a stoic. My father was kind of like that when I was growing up. Um, you know, completely different background and experience base. He, he was a, you know, he'd been a sports guy who then became a, a lawyer, right? And so, very different than being a fighter pilot. But something that stood out to me with my dad was that you know he always took things with an even kill, right? He didn't let. The most exciting things, he, he didn't, you know, become super overjoyed, but at the same time, if tragedy struck or if there was a circumstance that required his full attention, he didn't flip out to the other extreme. He was just a very even-keeled guy. And so, you know, a lot of times when you look back through moments of history or, or even as a person, you know, elements in your life where uh, you knew you were kind of this fork in the road, that's the, usually the most important point to realize that, hey, emotion is the enemy of good judgment. Take that, you know, take whatever emotions you're feeling, kind of stuff those into a closet for a moment and focus on just the facts. Focus on, you know, what do I know about this situation? Um, and I think the other thing that really helps with that is just realizing how much time do I have to deal with it, right? I think so many times because the emotion rises, we start thinking we have to make a snap judgment call. And I'll never forget whenever I was a commanding officer for a fire squad, and that's a huge responsibility. You've got 12 aircraft. That's like, what, 1.2 billion in assets. I mean, you've got combat missions occurring, and there's a lot happening in real time. But I told my pilots, I was like, look, I mean, the reality is on any given day, there's very few decisions I have to make a snap judgment on. I mean, you can almost always wait to gain additional data. You can ask more questions to clarify what's going on. So I think give yourself some maneuver space, right? Time, give yourself some time to assess the situation and figure out what's really going on. And then if time does permit, then pull in additional resources. And that's where those external viewpoints, those mentors or those friends or people who you really trust to tell you their honest, truthful opinion, that's where they become critical because you can sit there and say, hey, I'm dealing with something I've never faced before. I've got you know a few days to figure this one out. You know, What do you think? Or 
do you have a resource I could use? Right. And all those things you can start going just, I love, love your word mosaic. I always call it a tapestry, but it's the same thing, right? It's, it's pulling together all the pieces of information you have to make a very good judgment call. And then you move on to the next thing. Yeah. You, you mentioned timing. This is a question I always ask myself is, is how much time do I have until the risk changes and, and knowing when that risk yeah. is going to change. Uh, another thing you bring up is, is in these moments, right? Even with where you have limited time and you want to tap into your additional resources, who are the mentors, who are the people in your circle? That only takes place because you put in previous work. You've built those relationships. You've thought about that before. And so you're able to tap into those people because of that prior work. Uh, that, that, that to me is just a, a reoccurring theme. It seems like you really do a good job um, just really trying to like positively spring load those starting conditions so that they pay off like you were talking about with compound interest in the future. Uh, I just really yeah. enjoy hearing that. And you, you had two sayings that I, I really appreciate. One is calm breeds calm. And the other one is calm is smooth, smooth is steady, steady is fast. And can you just yeah. walk me through how you think about that um, and, sure. and, and why you like those sayings? Yeah. And, and now what you're referencing is, uh, is actually my second book. It's uh, Top Gun's Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. Um, and so I'll touch on something you mentioned just a minute ago before I answer your most immediate question. And that is um, one of the lessons that I put in that book, right? There's these 10 lessons I learned as a Top Gun instructor. And then I kind of I provide a, a pilot-based anecdote, but then I draw it into everyday life and say, hey, here's here's why that made a difference for me and here's what it can do for you. One of those is uh, a lesson called never wait to make a friend until you need one. Uh, and, and that's the principle there, like you mentioned about having those uh, resources, having those mentors, having those friends and, and others. And so uh, again, it's, it goes back to being intellectually curious, just always being positive and saying, hey, every, you know, every situation you're in, you can always extend a hand and and meet someone new and say, hey, okay, cool. You're a, you know, you work at Amazon. I'm fascinated. Okay. So you run a distribution facility for them. What's that like? Right. And so you you not only build a maybe a, a new friendship or at least a contact, but you also gain some experience and exposure to well, what are your best practices? How does that work? You know, what are your biggest challenges? And then you can incorporate that into your own career or to your own pursuits. So um, the other thing I was gonna mention too is that uh, when you mentioned these these ethos of uh, you know enemies emotion of good judgment or uh, calm breeds calm, you know the the slow is steady, steady is fast, fast is smooth is is really kind of uh, from a Navy SEAL that I knew. Right, that's something that the SEALs talk about a lot. And and the whole thought being kind of like we talked about with time compression is to say so many times in life when you are faced with a stressful situation, you kind of want to rush either into it or rush through it. It's like, hey, I just want to get this over with and move on. And the reality is usually when you make a rash decision, the outcome is going to be suboptimal, right? It's not going to be as best as if you had more time to, to consider a better solution or outcome. And so that's the whole ethos is like, hey, like we said, figure out like how much time do I really have to make a decision? Let me work within the parameters of that time boundary. But then let me slow things down. Let, you know, by slowing it down, you're going to be more steady with your approach. You're going to be more well-grounded with how you approach something. And then because you did that externally, it looks like you move really fast, right? Because you're making all of these right decisions and those right decisions over the course of one week, one month, one year, 10 years, suddenly looks incredibly smooth, like it was a well-oiled machine. And the reality is, hey, we've all faced challenges. Some things were crazy and just off the rails. Some things were fairly straightforward, but because you approached it in a very logical fashion and thinking about your wider strategy, then that's what enables you to ultimately be really fast at the end. 
Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned the seals. I, I had a seal mentioned to me slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And, and he told me this a long, long time ago, well over a decade ago. And so I always think about using these little things that eventually compound into big things. Um, so to, to make this applicable to some of the listeners, when, when I'm oh, can I, yeah, yeah, please. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to follow up with one thing. You also mentioned calm breeds calm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to say, you know, this is what I love as a dad, right? So I've got three kids. I've got two boys and a girl. Uh, my oldest is now in high school. My youngest is still in elementary school. And so you see this in your own daily life, whether it's kids, friends, et cetera. Um, like with my daughter's wrist, like we talked about, right? She breaks a wrist. If mom and I freak out, lose our minds, then you're modeling that behavior for, for her. And she's probably going to freak out and overreact as well. And so that's where this whole mantra of calm breeds calm comes from, is that especially if you're in a situation of leadership um, or if you're just a member of a team, you know, if you stay calm, if you stay steady, then people are taking their cues off of you and it helps bring the whole temperature down around you as well. And I, and I, and I witness that a lot, especially in the military, just because it is a fairly hierarchical organization. I've seen it work really well in the private sector also. You know, we've all had bosses, right? So if you watch your boss and, you know, you just walk away going, man, my, my boss is typically pretty calm, pretty relaxed, understands you know, how to make good decisions, then you as someone who's working for them typically feels more reassured and confident as well, because, hey, they've got this, right? I'm not, I'm not as worried. If you've got a boss who freaks out at the drop of a hat, then typically your stress level goes up as well. So that's where the whole calm breeds calm uh, is, is derived from. It's, and it also speaks to the importance of not only our own personal development, but then as all of us continue to rise up through some ranks, whether it's sports team, whether it's, you know, in the private sector, in the military, you know, uh, as you find yourself in those leadership roles, just remember everyone's always watching you, whether you know it or not. So the way you handle yourself is going to also have those those ripple effects across the pond. Yeah, the, the, that contagion, those ripple effects amongst the team. I'm wondering, are there things that you do? Say, there's another person on your team who, even though you're remaining calm, still seems to, to start that downward spiral, right? Like they're letting one stressful thing lead to another. Is there anything you can do to hopefully redirect them and, and get them to, to stop going down that downward spiral? Yeah, 100%. Um, look, I mean, this is this is the, uh, I'd say the basics, but it's really just good leadership. It's knowing your team. It's knowing your team and it's knowing their personalities. Um, so once again, before the moment of crisis occurs, you already know who are the people who are probably going to be steady as a rock and who are the people who are going to be a little more of the nervous Nelly. So, so you already know basically, Hey, moment of crisis occurs. Boom. As soon as that happens, I already know that I'm going to probably assign some tasks to the nervy nervous Nellies to keep them kind of busy and working on something that would be very easy and straightforward. Whereas maybe ones who are kind of more solid as a rock, you give them those higher level tasks that they can focus in on. You also can sometimes put those types of people together, right? Um, And that way, each person can either learn from one another or they can model good behavior to someone who uh, still has plenty of room, you know, on the runway for personal growth. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that's just knowing who you're with, knowing who the people are. And if you've never met them before, I mean, I've been in situations where a crisis occurs and you're in a room full of strangers, but you can start to, to see how people are reacting in the immediate and once again, as a leader, that's where you can kind of step forward and say, hey, okay, here's what we need to do. And then again, you start de- detailing out those tasks. But usually what you find is that the people who tend to overreact the most are the ones who who don't have much going on, right? They're the, they're the, the true bystander. Uh, and so that allows their emotional level to elevate. And so putting them to work and giving them a very clearly defined task to accomplish usually not only helps the team because they're doing something that needs to be done, but it also helps them to maintain their emotional stability 
uh, through that crisis. Can you keep even expanding on this? So it seems like really setting clear direction here for people. W what else might you do? Um, I'm just thinking the early days of a new team project um, where you're all coming yeah. together. Anything else you're doing? Yeah, well, I think once again, uh, one thing I'm always doing, like I mentioned, is, is a, a continual assessment of each individual. And so if you are noticing maybe, it doesn't have to be stress or a reaction to a specific set of stimuli. It could be just Hey, I want to I want to provide some artificial stress. Maybe it's an elevated or a shortened deadline. Hmm. Um, you know, you provide a little bit of these stress points for your team to see how they react, and then through that reaction, you're able to determine. Okay, now I'm starting to build a profile of each individual. Um, and if you do see that there are some who, especially, you know, I think it's probably maybe more critical in the military, right? Because you do have a lot of life and death outcomes that could be. Uh, de decided by how the team is formed. But even in the private sector, right, if you see that there are maybe a small subset of people who could really use some direct intervention, well, that's where you, again, you're a leader, you're a mentor, you take them under your wing. And uh, it could be as easy as just, you know, typically that's where the debrief comes in. Hey, provide some stressful stimuli, see how they respond. If you if you felt like that there's something to be gained and maybe a really great lesson to be learned from um, the way that they conducted themselves, then, hey, pull them in. And, and Because now you've got a direct, what you don't want to do is give feedback that is very just vague uh, because people not only hate that, but it's hard to actually teach anything. So in this case, because you provided uh, a little bit of a case study, you provided that specific stimuli, you can say, hey, we just did a task. Here's what you know I asked you to do. Here was the outcome. Hey, walk me through, you. what were you thinking? You know, uh, how were you working your way through that problem or that or that challenge or the task I gave you? And you know, it, being a good leader means you're actually listening about 80% of the time. So you're listening to them, you're listening to the thought process, and then you're finding ways to inject, um, you know, your leadership to say, hey, love what you did here, right? It's like it's like that love sandwich. So, hey, I love what you did here, here, and here. That was, was fantastic. Here's the area where I think maybe we can improve a little bit more. And here's the specific way I would have done that. But hey, at the end of the day, I thought it was a really strong effort. So, you know, let's get ready for the next one. Hmm. And so I think, you know, again, you always have to lead with compassion, but you create those moments in time where you can assess your individuals because by doing that, you have a really clear view of the strengths and weaknesses of each of your teammates before a true crisis or before a true, you know, tough deadline approaches where you know you're going to have to have all hands on deck. What have you found over time? Because you just worked with so many elite performers and operators. What is the hardest lesson to to teach or get the other person to embody, even for the highest performers that you've worked with? I think the toughest lesson, especially when you work with a lot of lead individuals, because it's a, it's a pitfall for a lot of people and that it's basically hubris. Hmm. Um, it's, it's most everyone, you reach a point in your development where you feel like there's not much more that you can learn, right? You've reached the pinnacle and I've worked with a lot of senior generals and admirals and pol uh, political leaders. And I think that's to me, the danger where, uh, maybe you even solicit input and people give you the honest input. And you're like, ah, that, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Right. That, I don't believe what you're telling me. And, and it's kind of at that moment where you start, you know, becoming a little bit arrogant. You start thinking that you know better than everyone else. And the reality is you don't, it's just, you've become, we, we'd always say you've become drunk on your own success, mm -hmm. right? You're drinking too much of your own whiskey. Yeah. And so uh, I'd say, the corollary to that is the best leaders I've worked with. You know, you've got guys like Admiral Bill McRaven, who uh, was a Navy SEAL for a long period of time. He's he's had a lot of good leadership books out there, like Make Your Bed. Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, no matter how successful he became and these other leaders became, they 
They continually knew that they had something new to learn. You could take the most junior new member of your team who just walked in the door from high school um, and they may have that golden nugget that you can use to not only improve the team, but improve yourself, right? So it's that, again, it's that intellectual curiosity. It's that willingness to admit that as a leader, you don't know everything all the time. And so you're willing to put yourself in a little bit of a vulnerable situation to admit that to your team. Like, and, and, but I think once again, you watch when leaders do that uh, and it builds a stronger team because the team members, it, it kind of like takes the temperature down mm-hmm. in the room. When a, when a leader is willing to admit their mistakes or they're willing to admit that they don't know everything, then it's a more collaborative atmosphere than it is a top down, you know, the leader knows everything and everyone else is just working for them uh, type of atmosphere. So I, I'd say, you know, if I had to pick one thing, that's, that's what I would caution people to watch out for. But the best way to combat that is to continually to surround yourself with people who uh, do a great job with uh, leadership and do a great job with realizing that no matter how far you've gone, there's more you can still learn. And at the end of the day, you just want to try and frankly become the best person you can possibly be. And that just requires continual refreshing of, uh, of where you are. Guy, Guy, you bring up something I just really appreciate talking about kind of opening up, being a bit vulnerable. You're removing those, those, those barriers, those barriers to entry, to be able to learn. Um, I almost think about this in a team dynamic, right? If people are, are concerned and there's no level of vulnerability or trust there, then a lot of these leadership lessons or tactical strategies, they're not even going to be able to be learned by the team. It's almost like a, a hose. If there's a crimp in the hose and it's not released, the water can't flow. Same thing for some of these team dynamics. So I love that you highlight that, that the leader needs to be aware of these team dynamics to open those floodgates so that learning can actually take place. And that that learning, that intellectual curiosity is something that is clearly coming out in you. Um, you mentioned your love of reading. Any books that have been foundational for you over the years? Yeah, in fact, I do. I do my readers a solid because even that's why I pulled it out. My my book at the very end. What I'd like to do is typically put like a reading list, uh, just because when I was reading books, you know, I mean, everyone's different, and I have a lot of people, uh, members of my family included, who might read one or two books a year, right? And so uh, I love putting a reading list in there because it's exactly what you asked. Um, I spanned kind of everything from I think one of the coolest books if you're into. Uh, stoicism. If you're into that kind of, I'm going to take the world as it is. I'm not going to get too emotionally invested. I want to just stay even keeled approach. Um, then the, then the grandfather, if you will, of stoicism is, uh, from antiquity, right? It's the former emperor Marcus Aurelius from uh, the Roman times. Um, you can find that book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you buy your books, but it's called the emperor's handbook. Um, it's got phenomenal, life lessons. And the funny thing is, right, this came from antiquity, but you're reading some of these lessons and you see those same lessons played out, whether it's in the Bible, the Quran, you know, uh, leadership tomes, like even like my own, right? Um, the the importance of staying calm, the importance of taking the world as it is, uh, not necessarily reading too much into what you think other people's designs are, just taking it at face value and making a smart judgment off of that. So I think that's a great book. Um, I mean, you've got some of the, the classics like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People from Stephen Covey, um, and then I think beyond that, you know, it starts getting into who you are and what you want to, uh, pursue, right. Um, you know, as a, it, when I was young, I mentioned something I really wanted to become good at was, was financial investing. So I was reading financial investing books. I was reading, um, you know, uh, there was a book called thinking grow rich from Napoleon Hill. I was reading stuff that Warren Buffett and his partner, Charles Munger had put out, uh, about the markets. Um, if you're thinking about, hey, I want to take whatever my career path is and continue to improve and move forward. Then uh, I read a book when I was in high school called uh, How to Become CEO. Hmm. And it wasn't just like, how do you become CEO of Coca-Cola? It was, 
essentially those same type of leadership traits of if you want to rise to the top of any organization, here are the types of things you should be thinking about. So again, it's, it's really finding the things that, that work best for you. And I'd also say for anybody um, who wants to be, who wants to continue to find success, one of the things that actually came to me later in life was the importance of effective communication, right? You can be one of the smartest people in the room. You can be the most dedicated person in the room. If you can't effectively communicate that to other members of your team or outside your organization, uh, it's hard to get noticed. It's hard to stand out. It's hard to be effective, quite frankly. And so one of the books I read when I was in the Pentagon for the first time was called Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. Um, and it was a great book. Yeah, because it basically, uh, he's got this whole mantra called success and each letter, you know, stands for something. But I still use that those types of central tenets today when I do keynote speaking where, um, you know, I want to do something a little bit unexpected, draw the audience in. I want to do something that maybe surprises them a little bit, uh, those types of things. So, you know, again, I think that's where this whole thing about having friends and mentors and, and figuring out what it is you're inspired to do. It could be, you know, it could be something career-based. It could be something life-based. It could be something family-based, you know, figure out who's been there. Who do you believe has done a really nice job of that? And then figure out what they've engaged with or what books either they've produced or that they've, that they've read that, uh, or people that they've listened to, right. Um, that could make a difference with your path. One of the things I'm, I'm hearing here is just a high degree of self-awareness. And one of the things I, I see a lot and they get a lot of questions on actually is from listeners is they, they hear all these people's reading lists and they just start like not, not knocking them off. And I'm like, well, was that book important for what you're trying to solve or what you're going after right now? So what I'm getting at is how did you build your own self-awareness? How did you get better at uncovering yeah. your inner desires um, so that you could actually bring in the correct reading material? So, so I'd say let's, let's, we focus a lot on kind of the cool stuff, right? Uh, fighter pilot or, you know, military, Pentagon, president of the United States, you know, uh, being in the room with really senior people. Um, but for the, the, bring it back to the basics, right? Brilliant at the basics. So your podcast, what got you there? Uh, for me, I think that was a critical component because there's always, there's always two elements to this equation, right? There's, you know, it's like communication, right? There's a sender, there's a receiver, it's the same thing in life. There's people who are going to give you opportunities. And then are you in a, are you in a proper headspace to actually recognize it and take advantage of the opportunity? For me, like I was very just lucky as a kid. I had a great uh, school. I had a great church family. I had great parents who wanted to make opportunities available. So not because it had little to do with money, right? It was experience. It was, hey, my dad was adamant that I was going to be a Boy Scout. Right. So, hey, you're going to be in scouting, but what did that do for me? Well, you got to earn these merit badges, right? You got to learn financial. You got to learn uh, all sorts of just this wide variety of skill sets to be able to, you know, work your way up through the ranks and become an Eagle Scout. Um, when I was in church, uh, it was a lot of the mentors in the church who were, you know, one guy worked at General Dynamics as an aerospace engineer. He's probably one of the biggest reasons I became a fighter pilot because he kept feeding me like these glossy brochures, these posters I'd put up on my wall at home. There was a cutaway view of the F-16 Viper or the Fighting Falcon, right? So, you know, I didn't just have cars or sports guys on my, on my wall. I had fighter jets. So that to me, like, I think that's one of the things that if you are seeking your own self-enlightenment or you're seeking to master something new or, or achieve something beyond where you are today, then you can seek those resources uh, because I think most of your listeners are probably either, you know, late teens or, or somewhere as an adult, right? You have more resources. But I think if you flip that on its head and say, as someone who has achieved anything in life, one of the best things you can do for that next generation is to 
you know, look for individuals you can support, especially the younger they are, the better. And so that's something I'm very adamant about with my own kids is, is forcing them to put away their electronics or getting out of the house. I'm going to take you to do something new. Uh, I'm going to expose you to the wider world. It doesn't mean you're going to be an expert on all these things you're being exposed to, but at least you know it's possible. Um, at least you know that you can change your own oil. You can change your own tire. You can, you know, you've been to a train yard, right? So, I mean, it's like all these things that are out there um, and you at least give some broad base of exposure so that that gets the kind of intellectual curiosity fired up. And now you can start fo- asking those follow-up questions uh, either real time or sometime later in life. Even when you were younger, you, you just used a phrase that just piqued my interest. You said, open them up to what's possible. Did you put any limits on yourself when you were younger or do you now, or do you kind of view everything as an, an endless possibility? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's more of an endless possibility. So, so and I think if you think, you know, if you look at my path, uh, I started off, pretty much largely in the U.S. military. I mean, right after high school graduation, boom, I'm off to the Naval Academy. And so that's a, a military institution here in the United States. Um, that's a four-year institution. I went straight to grad school for a little bit and then immediately to pilot training, right? And so then now I'm on the military treadmill. That's a very, I think for most people, that's a very uh, static career path. I mean, it's like there's really only one way you can go is, and depending on what you do in the military, it's like you're you're on that path. Um, I found that not to be the case. I found that you could actually create a lot of variability and a lot of excitement. But I say that because now that I have transitioned back in 2018 from the military to the private sector, man, holy smokes, especially today's day and age, right? I mean, it's like everything's got some form of digital accessibility. I mean, you you likely have a skill set. You have something you can produce that would be of benefit to someone in America, let alone the world, right? I mean, it's a global marketplace. So that's the that's that's the reality is to kind of elevate your thinking to realize, man, there's so much opportunity out there. It's really just kind of separating the wheat from the chaff and saying, here are the things I want to go after. And that I think would be uh, emotionally or mentally or, or just, uh, you know, enriching in some way, uh, shape or form. Right. And in your case, you know, a couple of years ago, I was doing the same thing, but like you're, you're doing great with podcasting is one of the things you do. And, you know, so, I mean, it's, there's so many ways to reach a new audience these days. And of course, when you podcast like you do, like it opens up all these new doors, you either meet interesting people that you interview or it provides new connective tissue to something else that you might be interested in or people who can find you. Um, So again, for your listeners, I mean, I think it's, there's just really endless possibilities out there. And, and today more than pretty much any time in our human history, if you don't like the path you're on, you can change it. I mean, you can find something else you want to do and shift gears pretty easily. And it's not like it was in the 70s, 80s, 90s, where maybe someone would kind of arch an eyebrow at you for changing direction. It's like, hey, yeah, awesome. You figured out something new you want to do and you're doing it. You know, more power to you. Yeah. And and you did an amazing job building a repertoire over all those years where, where now you're a CEO of Defense Analytics, where because of all those past experiences, you're continuing to evolve, to grow and use what you learned in the past to, to what you're currently doing. Uh, so, so I just loved hearing that. And then I also want to highlight, you, you seem to gloss over, um, you, you graduated MIT with two master's degree in nuclear engineering and computer science. So I just appreciate, yeah. um, I, I think, I, I just want to highlight again, um, just your commitment, your focus, your dedication to leveling up and doing the basics. You used a phrase a minute ago I, I loved and highlighted, brilliant at the basics. And I just love that, the focus on those small things that compound over time. Um, it's just really important and impactful. And I just want to really embed those lessons in the people who are listening here. Um, 
one thing I do want to dive back into, because you were just talking about effective communication strategies, and you you had a few that you've gone through over the past um, just in doing research for this. One was bluff bottom line up front. Um, I, can you just dive into this? Because I think this is very helpful for a lot of the leaders who listen to this. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's another lesson from from my book. Um, so bottom line up front is, is traditionally a military term. And, and I think if there's another part of the private sector that really focuses in on this really well, it's the media. Uh, it's especially the written word, right? Or even newscasters. You know, when you, when you, when you first pull up an article, typically that first paragraph is going to tell you almost everything you need to know. It's like today, this happened, this crisis occurred. Here's what, here's what the outcome was. And then you continue to read the article and it gives you amplifying information. Uh, My military background demonstrated that that's very much uh, the same way. And it's because it's the most effective way to communicate, especially if time becomes more of a critical factor. Um, we've all been in a circumstance where maybe time was fairly critical and someone's telling you this like really long loquacious story. It's like, they're just going on and on. You're like, Hey man, get to the punchline. Like what, what's going on? What do we have to do in this moment to succeed? Uh, and they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Here's what it is. And you say, thanks. Great. Now we can go. So, uh, what I have found for most leaders and I do this, in my email communications, I do it a lot of times when I talk to people is, uh, you know, kind of two things. One, I'll, I usually ask like, hey, how much time do you have? Like if they ask you a, a pretty deep question, then it's like, well, how much time do you have for, with me? And if it's like, hey, I've got 30 seconds, well, then my answer is going to be different than if you tell me 10 minutes. Uh, likewise, regardless of what they say, I'm usually going to give them the punchline first and then amplify afterward. And so uh, that comes in handy, whether it's talking to people, because especially in an executive scenario, you know, a lot of times people might refer to some of that as executive presence. It's just that ability to get right down to brass tacks. Here's the most critical information. And if you want to dive in deeper, we can, but frankly, here's what you need to know. Um, and so you put the bottom out front. I think the corollary to this, which people also like from my book is um, uh, activity over progress um, or don't confuse activity with progress is the actual one. But uh, so many times, you know, people think that busy work is real work. And the reality is like, Hey, we'll, you know, what progress did you actually make? Right. And I think the corollary here is, you know, you're sitting in your cubicle and you're just like working your way through emails all day long. But at the end of the day, it feels like, man, that was a full eight hour day, but then it's like, what did I really accomplish? Right. And so you kind of flip that out of the head and you determine, Hey, I, I need to accomplish those big things or the things that are critical for my job or for the team. So minimize some of the distractions so that, you know, you don't get wrapped around the axle. And, and we've seen this, whether it's um, meetings for the sake of meetings or just excessive communication for the ex- uh, sake of excessive communication. A lot of the high performing teams out there, whether it's private sector, military, whatever, um, they're really good about trying to get rid of the chaff and focus in on the things that really are going to make a difference, right? Um, because that's usually where people need to be is in a, in a good headspace to make solid decisions. Yeah, listeners, I, I, if you're wondering where a lot of these gems are coming, I know we mentioned it in the intro here, but this is from his book, Top Guns, Top 10. You also have an incredible book, Holding the Line. Um, Top Guns, Top 10, I think is just an, an excellent book. You, you mentioned your leadership tome. Um, you mentioned the one a minute ago, Don't Confuse Activity with Progress. That's for number six in the book. So it is loaded with gems for any leader, anyone who's trying to understand a lot of those foundational lessons that you picked up um, in your in your Top Gun days, um, if you want to implement them in your own lives. So I highly recommend that. Well, one thing I, w- I would love to know, we're going to wrap up here in a minute, but who, when you think about incredible leaders you've been around, who, who stands out to you? And what is just one of the big takeaways that you still seem to, to think about years afterwards? Yeah, I mean, in fact, uh, it's funny because I've been in the room with a lot of 
uh, very senior leaders. I've had a chance to be in a room with the president and the vice president. I've had a chance to be in the room for meetings with, you know, secretary of state, secretary of defense, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, usually they're pretty good. Uh, the best leader I was ever around was my commanding officer when I was more of a junior pilot. Uh, we were stationed in Japan. We were on board the aircraft carrier. And one, again, one of the things that made him so good, really, is probably two or three key you know, attributes. One of those being that, again, calm under pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, we always joke that you could run into the ready room, which is the spot on the, on the aircraft carrier where everyone in the squadron tends to hang out and study and prepare. You could run into the ready room and tell the commanding officer, sir, you know, we just had an aircraft hit the back of the carrier. It's on fire. And he'd be like, okay, yeah, just let me know when you've got more information, mm-hmm. right? Very calm. You could also run in and say, sir, we just won like the best award for the entire U.S. Navy. And he'd be like, Okay, awesome. You know, thanks. Let me know when you have more information, right? So he was just always very calm and even keeled. And it was great because uh, it did a few things. It it really brought the temperature down. You were never afraid to approach that leader because you knew he wasn't going to bite your head off. Uh, that's probably one of the worst things that a leader can do is overreact or maybe react in a way that's anticipated as like adversarial um, because of the fact that people are going to start bringing you information. Um, I mean, so if you, if, if someone can't bring you bad information, then they're not going to bring you really any information unless it's positive. And you, and as a leader, you have to have access to information to make a smart decision. Um, other things that he did, you know, it was a very collaborative environment. It was a, it was a situation where, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you could be the most junior individual, you could be the most senior individual, you know, your, your input was going to be weighed uh, the same. And so that created a culture where everyone felt like a contributor. Everyone felt like they had a, a part of team success. And I think the other thing that really worked great too was the overall kind of on-brand messaging uh, that really worked for him. No matter what we always said, it, our squadron was VFA 102. So that's Strike Fighter Squadron 102. We were the Diamondbacks. And uh, our unofficial motto was world-class. So he was a big sports guy. And his thing was like, hey, guys, uh, guys and gals, it doesn't matter. Like, we're going to be world class. Everything we do is world class. And, you and you know, initially, it's like people are kind of chuckling. Okay, got it. You know, we want to be special. We're world class. And it wasn't about that. It was very much about that. Just you infuse everything you do that you're going to you're going to meet the bar. and You're going to do that extra 10 percent. Right. You know, it's, it's like you're going to take it just a little bit beyond where you were. And when that cumulatively adds up across all the members of the squadron, you know, all 200 and some odd people now you know, your, your organization is world-class. So I think, you know, those are all, all things that not only I found to be very impressive, I sought to uh, embody or to absorb some of those lessons with how I operated as I became a more senior leader and uh, something that could really pay off for each and every one of us, right? Like, I love that mentality. Of you just never want to do the basics. You always want to take it at least a notch above it. And, and we all find that that becomes part of your calling card. Mm-hmm. You know, when people consider who you are, like, hey, who's Sean? Yeah, Sean's like a guy who's going to take it He's going to do a great job. He's always going to take it like to that next level, right? And and I think all of us can benefit from having that kind of reputation and mentality. Yeah, a, a new standard you can hold for yourself. Guy, guy, this has been wonderful. I, I would love to know, though, if you could do this, right? Like long-form conversation. I know you're a voracious learner. Who would you love to just sit down and interview and ask anything you could have? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um, I'll have to think of an exact name, but frankly, the people who I love to interview and interact with are people who look nothing like me, right? Who have had a walk through life that is completely uh, different. You know, like maybe back in the day, it would have been someone like Jane Goodall, right? Someone who is a recognized expert in her field, 
um, but who I would never have crossed paths with. Um, recently, I've been helping with a project that has uh, some Hollywood involvement, and that's been fascinating, right? Because now, you, like, I never would have been exposed to, you know, what does it look like to be a director, or what does it look like to actually put together a pitch and have to do all this. That's been fascinating, right? So, um, you know, today's day and age, it would probably be someone who's just because of my natural interest level, probably someone who's on like the cutting edge of something uh, that could be the next big thing. You know, Elon Musk has found a lot of success, but he's very well known. And plus he's a great transmitter of information on his own right. Um, but, you know, someone who's kind of like looking at that next, you know, what's that next thing going to be in the next decade or two uh, and have effectively, you know, positioned themselves to capture it and talk to her, talk to him and uh, be able to figure out, you know, not only uh, what it is that they're excited about and pursuing, but then also, you know, the whys behind it, right? That's that's where you really start cracking open the nut or the egg, and, and, and you and you get to the goodness on the inside is, is not just the bumper sticker, but to say, okay, well, what led you to that realization? And uh, and then what are you going to, how are you going to incorporate that? What are, what are the ways you're going to take advantage of what you're doing now? Yeah, guy, you bring up one of those really important parts that I, I just like am really invested in, and and that's in terms of people see all these little quick tweets or like you mentioned a bumper sticker, and the people who came up them, someone like a Charlie Munger, someone like a Buffett, someone like your former leader who uses the the phrase world class. There are countless pages of thought of lived experience that goes into coming out with that little phrase. And to your point, get to the why behind it, understand the why. And then you can use that principle again and again, not just for one little specific thing, but for many more things. That's just something I really wanted to highlight. But Guy, this, this has yeah. been a blast for me. I really appreciate it. Listeners, I know you're going to be intrigued by much of what Guy brought up here. You can pick up his two books in the show notes, Top Gun's Top 10, Holding the Line. You can also check out more of what Guy currently does as CEO of Defense Analytics. Um, so we're going to have all of that linked up. But Guy, I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate you coming on, sharing some of the lessons that you've learned along the way here on What Got You There. Yeah, thanks, John. It's been a great uh, pleasure talking with you, and thanks for the opportunity. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.